At this time, if you are able, please stand for the scripture reading out of respect for God's word. Our scripture reading this morning comes from Exodus 34, verses 5 through 9. The Lord descended in a cloud and stood with him there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiven iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children, to the third and the fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. For it is a stiff-necked people and pardon for our iniquity and our sin. And take us for your inheritance. This is God's word. It is true. And it is given out of his love. You may be seated. Amen. Thanks, Reagan. Well, it's great to be worshiping with you all. Merry Christmas. Uh, it's uh, such a uh, wonderful time of year to be gathering as God's people at church to worship Jesus, to study his word, to love his people, to uh, prepare our hearts for Christmas and the significance of everything that's coming. Um, one, of, one of the things I do want to tag up with Reagan in the J-Team announcement real quick as we get going uh, is this is a, a new thing we're trying. We've never done just a small uh, month of January, different type of gathering for our church. And so like she mentioned, our DCs won't be gathering until February. And so what we are encouraging you to do is to get one of those books and as as you uh, fill out that intake form that was on the screen, the, the QR code, um, we can, we're, wanting, we're wanting to be relationally intentional and to, to uh, match groups together that wouldn't normally meet in a DC as a way of building some relationships across our church uh, in order to strengthen the relationships in our church instead of just being our DCs gathering. We'd love for people to be able to uh, partner with people outside of their normal gatherings so that when we start in February with our DCs, that we're even uh, stronger and, and better able to love one another well in that. So um, yeah, Kelly and I have signed up for one of the uh, uh, mixed ones, doing the, the uh, uh, Habits of the Household book, and we're, we hope that you can uh, join us as well in one of those two books. So um, as we get going here, this is our fourth and final Sunday of Advent, and so we're at this place now, December 18th. We're kind of trudging along through the month of December. The initial excitement of Christmas is coming, the decorations are up, uh, we're baking cookies, we're drinking eggnog, all of those things. Has kind of, the excitement has started to kind of wane, and we're, we're in this weird season of January, or December, that happens every year when we do Advent, and that is this realization that our expectations or our hopes and desires for what Christmas could be are kind of getting uh, shown that reality that there's a gap between our Christmas we're experiencing and the Christmas that we had hoped we would experience. So that, that's the case for many of us, and it is every year. And so for us, um, we realize, hey, we're not going to get Christmas cards out this year. And it's another year that I have not put the outdoor lights on the house. I haven't even bought them yet. Uh, and there's, uh, we're, we're, what, eight days behind in our Advent devotional, and it's only the 18th. So I'm not sure how we got so far behind so fast in all of this stuff. And so, But that's the case for, for many of us as we have this realization that, you know, our expectations and reality, and there's this gap between there, okay? And so with that, we have to just kind of trudge along and say, we're going to make the most of it. We're going to do what we can. But the problem is for many of us that 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 kind of gap that exists in our Christmas experience is also how we experience Christianity. We have these expectations. We have these hopes. We have these desires. We want to believe the best about our faith and our growth and all kinds of great things coming for us in relationship with Jesus. And then the rubber meets the road. We hit some cold, hard reality of some of our struggles in our lives, and we feel like there's this gap between the way we experience Christianity, the way we experience Jesus, and the desires we originally had for what it meant to come to Jesus. 
And so what we're going to talk about this morning is that, that according to the Bible, there is a gap between our experience of Christianity and who Jesus is. The difference, though, is the gap is Jesus so far exceeds any of our expectations and hopes and desires that he is so much better. He is so much more gracious. He is so much more loving. He is so much more kind than we ever could have dared hope or expect. And so there is a gap between our experience with Christianity and who Jesus really is. The difference is the gap is that it is so much better than we ever could have imagined. And so this morning what we're going to see is that Christmas, as we studied Jesus becoming flesh, taking a human body, um, adding it to his divinity, if that's the case, if the impossible actually happened, if God became a man, then that means that nothing is impossible for us as Christians anymore. Okay, if the impossible thing happened in Jesus taking on flesh, then as followers of Christ, we believe that even the better things than we could have ever have dreamed of hoping or imagining are actually going to be true in who Christ is. And so I'm going to say a word of prayer, and then we're going to study God's word together. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I thank you for your word for us. I thank you that we can gather as your people, that we can gather as people who are uh, desiring to know more about you, who are, are, are uh, desiring to experience more of who you are, and that, that as we open these pages, as we read these words, that we have this opportunity to encounter you in all of your glory and all of your, your power and majesty and might. And so I pray that, that as we study these words this morning, that I would uh, not be in the way, I would not be distracting, but instead we would all leave here with this beautifully clear picture of your son and who he is and how glorious he is. And it's in his wonderful name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, so we are continuing on through uh, John chapter 1. If this is your first week here, what we've been doing this Advent so far is we've been taking a few verses from John chapter 1, verses 1 to 18 every week, and just diving into what it tells us about who Jesus is. And so, so if, if Christmas is about the coming of Jesus, the birth of our Savior, and, and then we want to be able to actually uh, focus on and meditate deeply and profoundly on who Jesus is. And so these first 18 verses of the book of John are some of the most in-depth theology that you could ever study in the New Testament. It's one of three or four passages that does the most uh, a clear job explaining to us the identity of Christ, who Jesus actually is. And so we've taken the, the last three weeks and we're finishing this morning by looking just at a few verses each time in order to see who, who Jesus is so that we can love him and worship him better. So I'm going to do this morning one last time what I have done every week as we have studied. I'm going to read the entire 18 verses slowly and prayerfully so that as we, as we hear these words of God that um, we, we've come in from many different places this week. Um, our life is, is hurt. And, and hectic and, and frenetic and all of these things that, that happen to us. We're behind on our tasks and to-do lists. And our prayer is that this morning as we come into the gym, the same as it is every Sunday morning as we gather, that we could take a break, we could pause from all the craziness of the world, we could be reminded who Jesus is, and in seeing who Jesus is, we can understand who we were created to be even more clearly. So I'm going to read these verses together. If you don't have your Bible, uh, there's Bibles on the table. On the table, Bibles is page 886. I would definitely encourage you to get the text out in front of you as we go through it this morning. So hear the word of the Lord from the Gospel of John. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, 
He gave the rights to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, This was he of whom I said, He who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This is God's word. It is true, and it's given out of his love. So the first week, what we saw is the first five verses where we saw that the identity of Jesus, that he is, he is completely unlike us, that in fact we are the furthest thing from God because we are finite and frail and broken, but Jesus is infinite and eternal and all-powerful and the creator of all things. And then the next week, what we saw is that, that Jesus, as the creator of all things, has orchestrated human history exactly according to plan so that through hundreds and hundreds of years of prophecies leading up to Jesus, that it went exactly according according to how he desired it. And he had this precursor, this, this man who came before him named John the Baptist. We know him as John the Baptist. Not the author of the, the Gospel of John, but a different John, John the Baptist, whose role was to, to cry out, to proclaim, to herald, to prepare people for the coming of Jesus. And so we see that Jesus was involved in history, guiding it all the way up until that point. And then last week we saw that, that, that John was not the light, he was the precursor to the light, but Jesus Christ as the second person of the Trinity, the only Son of God, that he was the light, is how John describes him. He is the one that is the embodiment of good and perfection and that he came into the earth. But because we are sinners, because we have all rebelled against God, because our hearts are full of darkness and and sin, we are blinded to who Jesus is. We miss his identity were it not for Jesus opening our eyes. And we see that that in the first century is the same thing happened that happens in the 21st century. Because sin has blinded us, the people did not receive Jesus or understand who he was, but they continued to, to treat him shamefully They murdered him uh, because they were not aware of what his identity was. But we also saw this amazing promise that even though our sin has blinded us and has made us enemies of God, that we live in rebellion against Jesus and his righteous rule, God in his love and his grace for us has saved us anyway. He, he, He has called us to himself. He has adopted us as sons and daughters. We are now, Jesus is our big brother in the faith. We come to him uh, in repentance and we confess our sin. And because of that, he makes us new creatures. He gives us a new identity in his his family, and now we are, we are, we are able to free to follow him uh, and, and who he is. So those are the first three glorious weeks of this amazing passage, and now we get to this week. The reason why we picked this passage for Advent, because this verse, verse 14 in particular, is one of the most powerful verses in the entire New Testament. Let's look at this verse again. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. I, I said this last week about a, a different verse, but I think that if you're going to memorize one verse this Advent season, this is the one we need to take to memory because in it, there's so many amazing dichotomies that are embodied in who Jesus is. And in those dichotomies, a, a dichotomy is something that, that can't exist together. Like It seems like it, there's no way that it could ever fit together. In this verse, we have four different dichotomies that show us how amazing 
amazing Jesus is, that there's four things that should not go together, they should never coexist, but in Christ, because of how amazing and powerful and wonderful and glorious he is, all four of these dichotomies are actually found to be true in Jesus. And so, so the first thing we see is that the word became flesh, that's the first dichotomy. The second thing we see is that, that God dwelt among us, that's, that's something that shouldn't happen. We all see that, that uh, he, we have seen his glory, that's the third dichotomy, and the fourth dichotomy is that he was full of grace and truth. So I'm going to just take a few minutes at each of those dichotomies, each of those, those paradoxes or those contradictions and show you how Jesus is even better than we could have ever dared to hope or imagine. And, and if Jesus is so much more glorious than we could have ever even imagined, it should stir our hearts with greater affection for him, greater praise and worship for him, greater humility as we respond to who he is and what he has shown us. And so the first, the first one we see is the word became flesh. And so, so John uses this word, word, the Greek word is logos. He uses it for the first time here since those first five verses. And so think back to that first week when he said, who is the word? The word is the eternal, uncreated, all-powerful, fully divine creator of all things that exist, seen and unseen. Okay, so also think back to that first week. All the amazing attributes of who Jesus is as God himself, the second person of the Trinity, in the incarnation. When Jesus was born in Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, in that moment, the Word, the eternally all-powerful, uncreated creator of all that is seen and unseen, took on flesh. He, he, he added humanity to his identity. He became a human while he was remaining fully God. And so this, this word flesh is a, is a crude, strong way of describing Jesus became a man. God himself became a man. And so that should seem like the most impossible thing ever, right? If you think about if we are the furthest thing from God, how could God become one of us, right? So, so, so Jesus is eternal. We are bound by time. Our, our, our flesh gets old and it decays and we start to fall apart and our, our cells don't regenerate and we feel the ache of the, our bodies falling apart. But God, the infinite, eternal, all-powerful creator, took on human flesh. He was, he was bound by the same physical limitations that we are. Uh, we, we are bound by space and time. I, I can only be here right now be, and I cannot be anywhere else because I am I'm unipresent. Okay, but the omnipresent God of the universe who exists outside of space and time, who created every single atom and molecule in existence, he took on atoms and molecules and was bound by space and time. And he went from being omnipresent in, in his divinity to in his humanity, he only could be one place at one time. And he chose that specific time because it was the, the moment that human history needed. So there's this impossible combination, this dichotomy, the word became flesh. And, and it's something that, that should not be able to happen at all if you, if you understand the identity of who Jesus really is. That's what makes it so amazing. Um, uh, C.S. Lewis was this uh, British author in the last century, and he uses this illustration of saying, Hamlet, the, 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 the character that Shakespeare created, is so different from Shakespeare that there is no way those two characters could know each other. That the Shakespeare that existed in history and the Hamlet that existed on Shakespeare's page are completely in different universes. So because of that, there's no way that Hamlet could ever understand who Shakespeare is, right? Think about it. Like a character in a play cannot know the author of the play. But then C.S. Lewis says, unless this amazing thing happened where Shakespeare wrote himself into the play, if he made himself a character within the play, then his created character could interact with himself and have a way of understanding who his creator was. And so it's a crude analogy, but what it's pointing to is that the only way we could understand who Jesus is as someone who is so different, so exalted, so majestic compared to us is if he wrote himself into the play. 
if he became one of the characters on earth existing in space and time so that we could understand who he is. And so if you think about the glory that existed with Jesus before creation, the, 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 the worship that he is receiving in heaven from all time as the perfect son of God, the second person of the Trinity, him abandoning those things, leaving that so he could come to earth and be born in a stable to poor parents in the first century. What a demonstration of love. And that's what we're going to see as we go through all four of these dichotomies. The reason these things don't exist or can't exist, but they do exist in Jesus, is there are four different demonstrations of how much Jesus loves us in order to do that. Okay, that's the first dichotomy. The word became flesh. The second thing we see is that he dwelt among us. Okay, the, the eternally existent, all-powerful creator of the universe dwelt among people. Okay, and, and, and this, this word dwelt is, is a fascinating word. It's only used a handful of times in the New Testament. It's, it's, an, it's an old word that when they translated the Old Testament into Greek, they used this same word as tabernacled. So, so, so what John is doing is he's, he's taking that passage that Reagan read from Exodus, and he's showing how Jesus lines up with the revealed character of God from Exodus 32 and 33. And so, so in those chapters, we see that the tabernacle was this tent of meeting that existed uh, after God's people left Egypt in the Exodus. And the tabernacle was where the, the special, glorious, manifest presence of God existed and where um, the, 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 um, the Ark of the Covenant existed with the presence of God and the Ten Commandments, the stone tablets, and some other things in it. And, and so, so that tabernacle was the special presence of God. But, but no one could go into the tent, the tabernacle, except the high priest, and that was only once a year after he had made sacrifice for his own sins, after he had followed a bunch of rituals and different pr- procedures to make sure that his sin was atoned for before he went into the tabernacle once a year. And that's because in God's presence, the holiness and the majesty and the beauty and the glory of who he is, sinful people cannot coexist with that. If you tried to enter the presence of God in the tabernacle, except being the high priest once a year, you would be killed instantaneously because your mortal flesh could not handle it. That, that's how glorious it is for God to dwell, to tabernacle uh, among his people in the Old Testament. But now what John is doing is saying that same presence of God, the manifestation of God's character and glory in such a powerful way, now dwells among his people in the person of Jesus. Rather than being something that would kill you if you encountered it because you were sinful, you could bump into Jesus in the grocery store. Think about that. The almighty, powerful creator of the universe took on flesh and dwelt among us. It's something that that should not happen except for the demonstration of the love of Jesus. If, If you love someone, you want to be near them. And that's what we see in the incarnation is God loved the world so much that he sent his only son, that whoever believed in him would not perish but have eternal life. We, we, we've seen this in our own lives these last few years with, with quarantines and, and mandatory isolations and travel bans and all these things. Our hearts have recognized that there is something irreplaceable about being in the presence of someone you love. But because sin has separated us from God, we cannot be in his presence because we're so sinful and wretched apart from Jesus that God himself came to dwell among us. That's the second dichotomy, God dwelling among his people. And because he dwelled among his people, we see the third dichotomy. It says that we have seen his glory, glory as the only son of the Father, full of grace and truth. And this is another thing that's impossible. You cannot look on the glory of God and live. Okay, that's what, what Moses is told in Exodus thirty-three twenty. God says, for man shall not see me and live. 
If you encountered the glory of God, if you looked on him in all of his beauty and holiness and majesty, you would die on the spot because as a sinful, finite, frail creature, you cannot behold all of that glory and live. So, so glory, Wayne Grudem defines glory as the visible manifestation of the excellence of God's character. And I love that. Like God's character, love and purity and holiness, all of those things are so powerful when it's rooted in who God is that it takes on a physical manifestation. That you, you could see God's character is what it means to have the glory of God. And so, so Moses was the only person who ever saw God, but in order to not kill Moses, God hid him in a, a, a crevice of a, a rock, and he passed by. And Moses got the faintest glimpse of his back as he passed by, as he, as he kind of um, uh, embodied his, his glory for Moses to take a small glimpse of. We see, we see a similar thing about the glory of God in Isaiah chapter 6 where Isaiah sees this prophecy and, and he says he saw the train of God's glory filling the temple. He didn't even see God. He saw the hem of God's garment. And that was so glorious and powerful that Isaiah falls on his face and says, I deserve to die. I've encountered the most glorious thing that a human could ever see. It wasn't even the presence of God. It was the, tr- the train of his robe, the hem of his garment. And, and Isaiah, because of his sinfulness, knew he deserved to die. But, but in the incarnation, in Jesus, we have seen the glory of Jesus, the glory of God, the only Son who has come from the Father. And, and that's another picture of how much God loves us. Right? Like if you desire to have a relationship with someone, that's because you have affection for them. You love them. And so he, so he doesn't want to remain aloof and hidden. He's not like the, the Greek gods of the ancient world that would stay in their temples and, and only come down if they were going to discipline someone or, or have fun with the humans, making fun of them. Instead, he loved us enough. He took on flesh and allowed himself to be seen, his glory manifest in the presence of Jesus. Which gets us to the final dichotomy, the fourth one that we see here, is that he was full of grace and truth. Okay, so, so grace, undeserved favor, un, unmerited kindness, the, the love and affection of who Jesus is. I think we're all aware of this idea that God loves us. We've looked at three different reasons so far this morning of how we see the love of God. But then there's this idea of truth, right? So truth is, is justice, it, it's fairness, it's, it's equity, it's things working the way they're supposed to. And so when you put these together, it's saying that you can be fully known and fully loved. And I think we have this question of, is that ever actually possible? Uh, one of, one of the, my favorite movies I like to quote is uh, Meet Joe Black. It came out a long time ago with, with Brad Pitt. And then there was this amazing scene where there's this guy trying to explain to Brad Pitt what love is. And Brad Pitt asks, how do you know that your wife loves you? And he says, well, she knows the worst thing about me, and it's okay. And you hear that definition, I know the worst thing about you, and it's okay. That's a picture of what grace and truth is, right? That you could be fully known and fully loved. You have nothing to hide, no one to impress, and you are accepted and loved. And we evaluate our own relationships, we evaluate our own lives, and we say, it is a very incredibly rare thing to ever experience even the tiniest glimpse of that. I think deep down we know how frail and broken we are, and there's a part of us as humans that desires to hide the worst parts of ourselves, we try to protect those. We try to cover those up. We like try to pretend that we're, we're not as broken as we know ourselves to be deep down. And because of that, those barriers, those walls, says that if we were truly known, if we encountered truth, there's no way we could ever experience grace. But then this amazing dichotomy of who Jesus is, he came full of grace and truth. He, he, he is steadfast in his love and he is fair and just 
and he still loves us together. And what we see from Exodus 34 is that this has always been God's character. It's that when God reveals himself, he, he describes his character to Moses. He says, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. And those two Hebrew words, steadfast love and faithfulness, are the Greek equivalent of grace and truth. The reason that God loved us enough to come to earth to send his son is that has always been his character. He, he, he is just, he is fair, he, is equity, he, he will never be anything except truthful. But his love and his grace abounds and flows through him so much that this seeming dichotomy of grace and truth can only coexist in this amazing person of who Jesus is. So, so you look at those four dichotomies. The, the word became flesh. God became a man. The, he dwelt among us. God's presence lived in a normal existence among human people, and no one dropped down dead when they bumped into him. Okay, that we have seen his glory. We've been able to uh, behold the glory of who Jesus is uh, with human, frail, broken eyes, and that he was full of grace and truth. And, and you evaluate those four things, and you say, I feel like I have not been worshiping Jesus as he deserves. No matter if you grew up in church, if you've not missed a Sunday singing his praises in your entire life, we as frail, finite humans fail to give Jesus the glory that he deserves, to recognize how amazing and powerful and wonderful and beautiful and majestic and holy and, and righteous and all those things he is. And then you encounter in these verses and you say, Jesus is worthy of our worship. And it's not just that in his identity he's worthy of his worship. It's when we worship him in these four things, it changes everything about us. Okay, so, so, so God became a man. The word became flesh. That means that he understands what you're going through as a broken, finite, frail human. Okay, it says, it says he knows our frame, uh, that, that, that he is um, uh, aware to sympathize in our weakness. What an amazing demonstration of love that God became a man. Okay, or about the dichotomy of God dwelt among us. It's even more amazing than that when you read 1 Corinthians. What we see is because of the cross and Jesus paying for our sin, the Holy Spirit now dwells within us. Okay, the Holy Spirit now dwells among us as God's people. So that we get to experience the physical presence of Jesus in our own hearts because that's how much God loved us. Or, or, or the, the idea of, of we have seen his glory. If God's glory is able to be beheld among us because we have the Spirit within us, that means we are freed from having to live for our own glory. I don't have to try to assert myself and draw worship to myself and prove myself and hope that people will affirm myself. Instead, I can give Jesus the glory that he deserves because it's not about me. We can behold the glory of God. And the fourth thing we see is that he came full of grace and truth. And so because of that, we, we, the, all this talk of we have to balance grace and truth. Like I, I want to love this person, but I also have to be truthful with this person. And we create this scale of like we need equal parts grace and equal parts truth. And that's what it means to follow Jesus. But what we see in Jesus is Jesus fully embodied both of those. So we don't have to balance grace in one hand and truth in the other. We take both hands and we grab onto Jesus and he is the one who has grace and truth that extends from him through us to all the people that we can interact with and love. And what, what an amazing picture of the gospel, the idea of grace and truth embodied in Jesus. Uh, Tim Keller, a, a pastor in New York, says it this way, that the gospel is this, we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet at the same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Uh, you, you, are, you are worse than you ever thought, than you ever imagined. You're, you're more broken and sinful than you ever would have given yourself credit for. 
but in Christ. Because Jesus came full of grace and truth. You are more loved and accepted than you ever could have imagined or guessed or hoped. Again, there is that dichotomy. There is that space that exists between our experience of Christianity and who Jesus is. But it's not, he doesn't hold up to our expectations. It's he is infinitely better than we could ever have dared imagine or hope. And so with that, so that, that, that verse is really the crux of this passage. But he goes on for the next four verses to show us four more implications. If Jesus is those things, if in Jesus the word became flesh, that we dwelt among us, that we have seen his glory, and he's full of grace and truth, then that changes everything else about our existence as well. So let's go quickly through these final four verses. We see in verse uh, 15, it says that John, John the Baptist, that he's already referred to, bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. And then, so what John is doing is saying that, that even though John the Baptist appeared on the scene before Jesus did, his, John's ministry predates Jesus's, because Jesus is eternally existent, Jesus is the one who deserves the glory. And a lot of us is that John cried out, like it literally means to yell. Like his job was to scream from the mountaintops the glory of who Jesus is. And if that's true, if the word became flesh and all four of those dichotomies are seen together in Jesus, then that means no one else, not even John the Baptist, who Jesus says is the greatest ever born of women, not even John the Baptist deserves to be on a pedestal. So we, how, how dare we put our family members, our leaders, our politicians, anyone else on a pedestal that only Jesus deserves as the one that uh, was, was heralded by John. The next thing we see in verse 16, it says, For from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace. Okay, so think back to the Logos, the word. Who is Jesus? He, he is infinite in his glory and his majesty and his power and his beauty and all those things that we keep repeating as that sound uh, hyperbolic, but they're not. They're true in Jesus. Jesus is all of those things. And from his fullness, from the infinite nature of who Jesus is, who is not bound by time or space or anything created because he's the infinite creator of the universe, from his fullness, we've received grace upon grace. You will no more run out of grace than Jesus will run out of space or time. Right? If, if he is infinite in his character, then his grace for us is infinite as well. Grace upon grace. Okay, Paul says the same thing in Colossians. He says, uh, for in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. Or in Colossians 2.9, for in him the fullness of deity dwells body. This, this, this is a, a completely essential piece of what it means to be a Christian, is to believe that the infinite character exists in the person of Jesus and if God is infinite in his character, then his grace and his love and his mercy for you will never run out. Yeah, I, I, uh, Lamentations 3 has been completely wrecking me for the last few months. I can't get over how amazing the truths are in it. It says in Lamentations 3, the steadfast love of the Lord never ceases. His mercies never come to an end. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Okay, how can we be confident that, that God's love will never cease? That, that tomorrow when we, make up, we wake up, we'll have just as much mercy waiting for us as was available to us today. It's because from the fullness of who Jesus is, we've received grace upon grace upon grace upon grace. What an amazing testimony to God's character. Verse 17. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth 
came through Jesus Christ. We had the law was given through Moses, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. That seeming dichotomy again of grace and truth existing in Jesus. Now, and this verse is kind of confusing because when, when Paul talks about the law in the other New Testament letters, he kind of sets it up as the, in opposition to grace, right? Like the law of Moses was this thing that condemned us, that made us aware of our sin. But, but when John uses the law of Moses in the Gospel of John, he uses it in a very different way. Every time that John talks about the law of Moses, he refers to it as something that existed hundreds of years before Jesus, but existed to point people to the fact that the Messiah was coming. And and so so John is saying here, the law came through Moses. There there was prophecies that Moses issued that told us that the Messiah was coming and that what his character would look like, and then that was embodied and fulfilled in the person of Jesus. Jesus. Okay, and so what this is is another reminder that everything in human history has unfolded exactly according to plan as how God designed it to be. From Moses all the way to Jesus, human history was on the trajectory that God wanted it to in this glorious fulfillment of the person of Jesus. Which means if God is the one who has guided history like that and that this, this dichotomy of grace and truth exists in Jesus, then that means that nothing that we experience in our human existence is going to be wasted. The, the pain and the scars that we experience as frail humans will one day be redeemed because it's all part of God's sovereign plan. It's like, it's like that great theologian Sam Wise says in Lord of the Rings. He says, is everything sad really going to come untrue? And that's what happens in Christ, in his grace and his truth. Everything sad in your life will one day come untrue because of what Jesus has done, which gets us to the final verse of this passage, this amazing chapter that we've been studying, verse 18. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. And so he's dealing with this reality. You cannot see God and live, right? That's how God has existed in the Old Testament. But the only God, the second person of the Trinity, Jesus, who is fully God and fully man, he has made God known to us. And that's how we get this final picture of how much God loves us. Because you can't love someone and hold yourself back from them. You, you, you want them to understand who you are. You want them to know your secrets. You want them to know who you are. Um, um, there, I have a childhood nickname that none of you in here except my family will know what it is. And I've already told my kids not to tell anyone. So if you ask them after church, they won't tell you. Because my childhood nickname is a private part of my identity. But if you really know me, you will know what that is. Okay, same thing all of you. You have, you have embarrassing things about yourself that you want to keep hidden. But in Jesus, he loved us so much that he didn't want to remain hidden. He wanted to be known by his people so that we could experience his love and we could love him in return. What an amazing demonstration of God's character. Like, because of our sin, we would be blind to his identity were it not for him revealing himself. But the only God that exists in infinite power and glory and might has desired to be known by his people so he showed himself to us in the person of Jesus. And if that's true, if the impossible has become possible when Jesus became a man, then that changes everything. And what, and what we see from that is that it doesn't just change everything about our understanding of who Jesus is. It literally changes everything about the fabric of the universe and how it is that we can experience God. So in Colossians 1, this is a, a very similar passage. In Colossians 1, verses 15 to 20, this is how Paul describes the glory of Jesus. It says, He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. 
And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. And he is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. For in him the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things. The fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. Okay, this is the part that, that in John chapter 1 we don't see the full story because of this important last piece that Paul shows us here. It was in his bodily existence he came to earth to make peace through his blood on the cross. It's not just that God was so glorious he wanted his people to know him. It's that God was so loving he wanted to remove the barriers that kept us from loving God in the first place. Our, our sin and our rebellion was paid for. The penalty was poured out onto Jesus. We're in his perfect, sinless existence. He grew into a man. He obeyed the Father in all the ways that you and I struggle and fail. He obeyed him so perfectly that when he died on the cross as the only innocent man that has ever lived, his death was the atonement. It paid the penalty that we deserved so that we could have peace by the blood of his cross. And that only happened because in a small town of Bethlehem 2,000 years ago, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. God himself took on human flesh, and that changes everything. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for your, your word for us this morning. I thank you that when we, we come and study these, these uh, words, that it's not just uh, ink on a page, but it's the living, active, sharper than any sword, uh, word of God himself. And so I pray that as we turn to our tables now, as we meditate on what it means to have all these seeming contradictions bound up in the, the human existence of the second person of the Trinity as God himself and I pray that you would open our minds to understand deeper things about you through your powerful Holy Spirit. And that as we understand those things, that our hearts would be drawn to worship you in the beauty of who you are. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if this is your first time worshiping with us, we're so glad that you're here. Uh, we, we, we love having visitors because it gives us a chance to, to love you and to get to know you better. Um, we also love having these discussion tables because after we process a, a sermon together, we listen to a passage, we can turn inward and we can, can share what it is that God is showing us through his word. And so if this is your first time, know that anything you share at your tables, you'll be loved and welcomed. Uh, at the same time, there's no pressure to share anything that you're not comfortable revealing about yourself. So here's three questions that are some guidelines for us as we uh, take these next 10 minutes for discussion. First of all, which aspect of John 1 through 18, the things we've studied these past four weeks, stands out as the most encouraging thing for you personally? What is it that God has done through these 18 verses to encourage you? Secondly, why do we typically view grace and truth as existing in opposition? And how does Jesus coming full of grace and truth change how you view their relationship? And then lastly, um, faithful Christianity embodies many dichotomies similar to what John outlines in verse 14. So, for example, we love our enemies as Christians, right? That, that's a di- dichotomy. Uh, we can find f- uh, peace amidst struggles and trials. That's another dichotomy. What other contradictions or dichotomies are we called to embody as Christians? And how does God becoming a man help us with that? So that is a, that's like a next level deep thinking question. So if you get to that, you're just probably smarter than most people at your table. So be kind as you share your thoughts on that with everyone else. So we'll do that for about 10 minutes and then we'll end with the time of worship. Trying to understand what um, the word becoming flesh and God's sovereignty and perfect timing and what does that mean during our season of joy 
Um, I know just through my experiences and my contacts with people that um, this season often doesn't bring joy. It really amplifies the struggle of sin in our life, um, the struggles that exist within our family, within our relationships. When we're trying to be vulnerable, we see brokenness, uh, we see hardship, um, and this season continually points to that we're supposed to be joyful. We get to see Jesus coming to the earth, um, but Jesus also came at a very broken time of the earth, um, and even since him, it's still broken. Um, he's, he's the light that comes into the earth that's, that quenches the darkness that we exist in, and so that light now dwells in us because of Jesus' work on the cross and his final work on the cross, but um, I know this time of joy can be confusing, and so I don't want us to run from that, though. I want us to use both our hands of grace and truth and cling towards the only one that is grace and truth, and that is Jesus Christ. When you run to him, the sufferingness and the brokenness doesn't have to make sense because he makes sense. And when he was on the cross, um, or actually when he was being arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew 26, he talks about um, how if he needed to, he could call down leagues of angels but he wouldn't do that because of his love, he had to come to fulfill all of the Old Testament. And so knowing that he is fulfilling what we don't understand, that he is working in us things that we cannot see, um, that his sovereignty goes beyond our eyesight and our understanding, uh, we can rest assured that Jesus' work on the cross is perfect. So as you go to the table today, um, take the bread, understanding that it is the fullness of life, that you may not experience fullness on this side of earth or on this side of death, but on the other side, we get to have that fullness with Christ for eternity. And that the sin and the struggles that you're dealing with right now within your family, relationships, as family comes into town, um, that is completely washed clean by the blood of Jesus Christ. His grace um, upon grace upon grace that is new every morning, you get to experience in the fullness by running to him. So um, if you come to the table here at Missio Day, we practice open communion. So if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that you have put your faith in him, please come to the table with two hands ready to receive. Um, if you do not yet believe in him, um, today is a great opportunity. Today is the day. Uh, my wife and I will be under the basketball hoop area over here. Um, please talk with us. We'd love to talk to you about Jesus and how awesome and perfect and wonderful he is. So um, in that, let's pray real quick. Heavenly Father, we want to lean into you this season, understanding that we are not perfect, that we do not see or understand the sufferings and struggles of this world, but that we can look to you who is joy, who is love, who is peace and kindness, Father, that you uh, became a little baby, humbling yourself from the throne of the Almighty God to love us, and to lead us into forgiveness, to have us experience what true community and true love is. So Father, let us be joyful in that your love for us goes beyond all time and space, and that we can worship you today, Father. And we pray. Amen.